Well, good morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that your word is like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. You said that your word will not return to you void. It will accomplish everything that you have purposed it to do. And so we trust, Lord, that today, this morning, as we attend to your word, that by your spirit, you will use it to do your work in us, that you will show us your glory Make us quick to praise. You will show us our sin and make us quick to repent. You will show us the gospel and make us quick to rest. You will show us your provision, make us quick to thank. You'll show us our need and make us quick to ask. For we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to open to Titus chapter 2. We're taking a brief one-week break from the book of Romans. Tom will be back next week and we'll pick up right where we were in Romans 10. But we're in Titus chapter 2 and 3 today. If you don't have a Bible, one of our ushers would be happy to give you one. Just raise your hand and if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one. If you were with us in the fall, we did a a short two-sermon series that we called The Marks of a Disciple. And really what it was 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 kind of a brief exposition of our mission statement. We exist as a church to advance the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. You see that on the the banners up here. And and so the idea behind that mini-series was to dig into the idea of what is a disciple. If that's our goal, we need to know what it is. And so we define disciple like this. Thank you, Christy. A disciple is a forgiven follower of Jesus who is growing to become like him. And we introduced this idea of the marks of a disciple, that these are, the, these are marks of maturity. This is what a, what a growing disciple is, is going to look like. There's going to be somebody who's loving God, who's loving others, and who's living for Christ. But one of the things that we didn't do during that series is we didn't really explore the idea of what it means to grow to become like Jesus. We said that, that that's what you should end up as, But we didn't say, this is how you actually grow. This is how you actually get there. Nor did we talk too much about what does it actually look like to to disciple people, to help them to grow, to become more like Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to circle back around and we're going to address those two questions. How do we grow and how do we help other people grow? We're going to see that that Paul has a lot to say about that in Titus 2 and 3. So you look with me starting in Titus 2 verse 11. He 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. One introductory comment to make here. Uh, You may not realize this based on, on your English translation, but in the original Greek, verses 11 to 14 are one sentence. Now, this, is, this is something that Paul does characteristically. Right? He, he writes in what we would consider to be these long run-on sentences filled with clauses and to the point where you have, to, you have to map it out on a piece of paper to remember what he's actually talking about at the beginning of the sentence. And, and so what I want you to keep in mind because of that, because this idea is it's one sentence, is that the subject of this sentence is grace. The grace of God has appeared. That's the main idea of that whole paragraph, that whole one-sentence paragraph. The main idea is the grace of God appearing. Now, Paul says that there are a couple different things that grace does because it has appeared. And grace, grace if, you're, if you're not familiar with, with the term or the way that we use it in the church, grace is God's unmerited favor towards people who deserve nothing but his wrath. That's all of us. Grace is is God showing mercy and love to those who have done nothing to earn it and in fact have done everything to disqualify themselves from it. And Specifically, when Paul talks about grace appearing, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And so Jesus came and Jesus' person and work, that constitutes what we call the gospel. And so for Paul, the words gospel and grace are, are very, very uh, similar. In fact, he calls the gospel in a few places the word of God's grace or the gospel of the grace of God. And so, the grace of God has appeared in the gospel, this this news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again, and he appeared. The grace of God has appeared, and it's done a couple different things. First, he says it's, it's bringing salvation. This is probably what we often think about when we think about grace. Yes, grace means my sins are forgiven. Everything that God could count against me and that rightly would count against me in his divine courtroom is not held against me because it was punished on the cross. The grace of God brings salvation. Salvation is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. It's a gift of God. We don't earn it. God gives it freely to us in Jesus and we receive it by faith alone. And 
we're probably all very comfortable, if you're, if you're a Christian at least, with this idea of, of grace bringing salvation. Grace has something to do with my past. My sins are forgiven. But grace also has something to do with my future. If you look in verse 13, that grace has appeared and it causes us to wait expectantly for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace forgives our past, it forgives our sins, and it causes us to look forward to the coming of Christ. For rebels, people who are not right with God, the coming of Christ means terrible judgment. But for those of us who have trusted Christ, his coming means we get to marvel at his glory and live with him eternally. The coming of Christ for us is not a coming in judgment, but in grace. And and it causes us to, to wait and hope for it expectantly. It assures us of our future with him. But sometimes... I think oftentimes for us, whether we acknowledge it or we just live it practically, we treat gospel grace as as if it has something to do with the past, and it does, and it has something to do with the future, and it does, but we don't know quite what it has to do with the present. We have uh, a, a... past and future gospel, but we don't have a gospel for right now. We have a gospel that looks something like this. Is this working? Great. Everybody, nobody's born a Christian, so you're born, you're, you're not a Christian. Everybody has to be born again. That's what Jesus said. That's what we call conversion. And so, before you are converted, before you trust Christ for your salvation, you're, you're not a Christian. And, and so we would rightly say that the greatest need for somebody who's not a Christian is what? The gospel. But then what we often fall into, whether it's explicitly in, in teaching that you hear or it's implicitly in the way that you choose to live your life, is that once you're converted, once you become a Christian... We think that then what we need is really not the gospel, it's discipleship. We think that discipleship is this, is this second step in, in, uh, in the Christian life. And it's like, great, we got the gospel saved, we're good with that, and now the rest of the Christian life is about me trying to become more like Jesus. And, and so we look, if we see it in Titus, we say, oh yeah, 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 verse 11, the, the grace of God brought salvation and, and, and verse 13, and then in, in the end, it, we're, we're going to be saved and it's going to be because of God's grace. Uh, but in the middle, in our life, it's all up to us. This is the way that we think about it. We say, verse 11 and verse 13, that's God's work for us. But verse 12, renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That's our work for God, right? This is what... This is what we often find ourselves drifting into. It's the default mode of our heart. You could call it saving private Ryan Christianity. All right, let me explain. Think back to the end of Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen Saving Private Ryan, I'm going to ruin the ending for you. (laughs) 
but it's been out for 20 years. <laughs> so that's your fault. The end of Saving Private Ryan, and just, just a hint, think about the title. It's not called Trying to Save Private Ryan, it's called Saving Private Ryan. So in the, in the end, Private Ryan gets saved. Surprise! <laughs> Captain Miller is one of the main characters, has spent the whole movie searching for Private Ryan to save him and be able to send him home. They're uh, GIs in World War II in France. And um, at, the end, at the end of the movie, he finally accomplishes this purpose. There's, there's a big battle at the end of the movie, and, and Captain Miller saves Private Ryan's life. But in the process, he's mortally wounded, and he's dying. And Captain Miller, as he's lying on the ground, he looks up at, at Private Ryan, who he's just saved, and he takes his hand and he says, Earn this. Earn this. You flash forward 60 years, and an elderly Private Ryan has returned to the cemetery in France where Captain Miller's buried. Ryan kneels down by the gravestone and whispers, Every day I think about what you said to me on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And he turns to his wife and he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, that's the way that we often think about our lives as Christians right now. Right? We think back to somebody who saved us in the past and we're imagining Jesus on the cross saying, okay, look what I'm doing for you. Now earn this. And when we hear things like, Jesus gave his life for you, now what are you going to do for him? It's as if we're saying to Jesus, you know, every day I think about what you did for me on the cross and I try to live the best life that I can, and I hope that's enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I'm earning what you've done for me. We'll sign off on justification by faith, that our forgiveness of sins is based on the death of Christ and, and what he's doing for us and in us, but then implicitly we end up treating our Christian life as one long uh, self-help book we are trying to, to earn what Jesus gave to us freely. And the problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. And I think we see Paul say that in this passage. And this is where it's so important that this passage, verses 11 to 14 in Titus 2, is one sentence and the subject is grace. Grace is the actor in this sentence. Grace brings salvation. Grace causes us to wait expectantly. But then, look at verse 12. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
the Christian life isn't about you trying harder. It's about the grace of God in the gospel training you to live in accordance with God's word. It's not self-effort, white-knuckle, try harder. It's grace. It's gospel grace from first to last. And so, in reality, when Scripture describes the, the Christian life, it looks something more like this. What we need most when we're not a Christian is the gospel. And what we need most when we're a Christian is the gospel. We never outgrow our need for God's grace. The, the same gospel that forgives our sins and assures our future grows us in the present. And you see in, in, in verse 12, Paul breaks it down into a couple different areas. He says, grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness and, and worldly passions. Grace fuels our struggle against sin. We struggle against sin not because God says you shouldn't do that, but because we know that we have the grace of God empowering us and assuring us that as often as we fall, the blood of Jesus Christ still cleanses us from every sin. Grace also fuels our striving for righteousness. Because this is not just let go and let God. Like, I get saved and then I just kind of sit around until God changes me. Right? There is, we really are supposed to renounce ungodliness. We really are supposed to try to live upright, godly lives. But not in our own strength. It's grace, gospel grace that fuels it. And, and Paul talks about three particular areas where grace fuels our striving for righteousness. First, he says, it's in reference to ourselves that we're supposed to be self-controlled. Right? Grace is the thing that, that gives us the ability, the power to be self-controlled. In reference to others, we're supposed to be upright, above reproach. Our relationship with others is changed by grace. And then in reference to God, we're supposed to live godly lives. Our relationship with God continues to be affected by grace. There's no sphere of life that falls outside of this. Paul is saying that grace, it's grace, grace, gospel grace that leads to growth in every area of life. And so if you want to change, if we're, if we're trying to answer that question, how do people change? It's gospel grace from first to last. Ultimately, every problem that we have, if you dig down deep enough into your heart, is a gospel problem. And grace has an answer for it. And so if we were to distill Paul's big idea here, what Paul's teaching into a single statement, we would say this, gospel grace is the catalyst for spiritual growth. It's not our effort, it's not our trying harder, it's not all of our spiritual disciplines and moralism and self-help, it's grace. Spiritual growth happens 
by gospel grace as we are learning to apply the gospel in all of its fullness and freeness to every area of life. So when we hear me or, or, or Tom or Bob or, or any one of our, our pastors or leaders talk about this idea of applying the gospel, how are you applying the gospel to your life? How does the gospel apply to that situation? This is what we're talking about. How do you bring the realities of the gospel to bear on the real issues of life? So how we grow is through gospel grace. But then we want to look at how do we, how do we then help other people grow? Because right? that's that ministry of discipling or making disciples. How do we help other people grow in their faith? When Paul has a a really nice little case study in chapter 3. So he's, he's given Titus uh, this, uh, this theological, philosophical foundation for how people grow. It says, Titus, the grace of God comes and it saves people and it changes people and is causing people to look forward to the coming of Jesus. And now he puts it into practice. So this is kind of like a little bit of a ministry lab where Paul is, is taking Titus along and saying, now, Titus, if I were you, this is, this is what I would do. Now, <clears throat> Titus is in Crete. Crete's an island in, in the Mediterranean Sea, south of Greece. And uh, Titus is the leader of the church there. And Paul is specifically telling Titus, here are some things I need you to talk to the, to the Cretans about. Um, and it really has to do with, with two areas in relationship to other people. It has to do with their, their relationship to people in authority and their relationship with just everybody in general. Um, and one of the reasons why this may have been so difficult and such a pressing issue is that the Cretans were notoriously surly people. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1 of Titus, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says... One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, this is probably a, uh, a Cretan poet, Epimenides, said, Cretans are always liars, easy beasts, lazy beasts, evil beasts. My glasses aren't working real well. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's not a real good resume. And, uh, and so Paul's like, these are the people that you, Titus, and your churches are going to have to deal with. And so he says in, in chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's easy, right? You guys got that down? Right? No problems? I mean, I'm, I'm sure for, for the Cretans who, who were hearing this and who had come to Christ and Titus is saying, okay, now listen, here's the way we need to be acting. You've got to be submissive to rulers and authorities. You've got to be obedient. Can't speak evil of people. And they're thinking, why not? Those people are jerks. And so rather than tell Titus, listen, Titus, you just really need to hammer home that God expects them to do this. That they really need to try hard to do it. Because that's what we said. 
What does he do? Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a pretty good resume too. He says to the Cretans who are like, I don't, I don't want to have to obey them. I don't want to have to be nice to them. I don't have to show courtesy to them. They're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. They don't deserve that. Paul's like, and that's exactly who you were. You're no different from them. So he's saying, remember who you were. He doesn't leave them there. He says, now, remember who you are. Remember why God saved you. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us because we were better than everybody else. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. If you're here, there is nothing more important for you to be than for you to be clear on this. All the stuff you think you do for God doesn't earn you any favor in his sight. If you want to be made right with God, there is one way. And that is to have somebody else who has done right for you. That's Jesus Christ. All the sin that we deserve to be punished for was laid on him on the cross. And all of the righteousness that was his that is his, is credited to us so that we stand before God blameless and perfect. We We just sang about it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul has been set free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He he rehearses with these people, the the benefits of their salvation, the resources that they have because of their salvation. They have have new life, regeneration. They've been born again. And this is very important. Christianity is not about getting a second chance. Christianity is about getting a second life. God doesn't just wipe the slate clean and say, okay, now try your best to do better. You get another chance. It's not a mulligan. You get a new life, an eternal life that begins now and stretches into forever. And with that life, you have new power. You you are renewed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes to dwell inside of you to write His law on your heart that you might be obedient from the heart because of faith. You have a new record. You're justified by grace. You've been declared righteous. 
all of the, the condemnation that was to be yours because of your sin fell upon Jesus and all of his righteousness became yours. And it's by grace. You didn't earn it. Grace, God's free gift. And you have a new future. You're an heir of eternal life. We have a blessed inheritance that waits for us, for those who trust in Jesus. So Paul rehearses these truths with, with the Cretans. He says, remember, you, you were once sinful. You, you were once foolish and disobedient. And God saved you. But it wasn't because you deserved it. It was because of his mercy. And so if you want to change the way that you're acting with other people, remember, you're no better than them. You're just as sinful as they are. The only thing that separates them from you is that you have received mercy from Jesus Christ. And just like Tyler said before, then we are supposed to extend mercy to others because of that. And then, just in case we didn't get the connection, Paul goes and he, and, he, and he wraps it up for Titus and he says, Titus, you want to help people grow? You want to help people change? You want to help people to have practical change in their lives? The saying is trustworthy. Verse 8. Paul, when he uses that phrase in the pastoral epistles, is often referring to uh, some uh, piece of doctrinal content, something about the gospel. Um, the saying is trustworthy, by which I believe he is referring to the previous three, four verses. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There's an action that he wants Titus to undertake. He says, Titus, I want you to insist on these things. Not just the commands. Don't just insist that they follow the commands. Insist on the gospel truths. Insist on what God has done for them that should fuel and motivate them to live godly, upright lives. And then the audience. Who is he saying that, that Titus should insist on the truths of the gospel to? Not just unbelievers, but believers. It says, Titus, preach the gospel to Christians. Remind them of what Christ has done. And then the, the expectation is that in doing that, believers will devote themselves to good works as the grace of God works in and changes them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are asking the question, well, how do I disciple somebody? How do I, how do I help somebody grow? Learn to speak and apply the gospel to them the benefits and the implications and the outworkings of the gospel to every area of life. So what are we going to do with this? Well, first, if you're a believer, learn to preach the gospel to yourself daily. We daily need to be soaking in that healing fountain of the gospel of the grace of God. If you want to grow as a Christian, and that is the expectation, you're going to grow. There's no, you don't get saved and then get to say, all right, I got my, 
as Tom would say, my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I'm just going to wait until I die. Disciples are meant to grow, and so there's expectation that we're going to grow, and if you want to grow and be used by God to advance the gospel, then you need to be saturating your mind with gospel truth daily, because if the gospel isn't going in, it's not going to go out. One way to, to, to start doing this, if you want a resource, because you're thinking, you preach the gospel to myself, what are you talking about? We don't have any left on the book cart because we sold out of all of them after the first service. Maybe there will be some next week, if you ask nicely. Um, it's a book called The Gospel Primer. You've heard Tom and, and Bob and many people recommend it before. Many people in our congregation have read it have used it. I talked to somebody after the first service who said they're using it in their daily devotions and loving it. And so it, it's a book that is built with the purpose of helping the Christian preach the gospel to themselves daily. So Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. We may have some more next week. You can get it on Amazon and, and all that. So, and then as we're learning how to apply the gospel to our own heart, then we also want to learn how to turn around and do that with other people in this ministry of discipling. We want to be a church of people who are discipling one another with the gospel and then reaching out to others who don't know the gospel to include them and bring them and help them to become forgiven followers of Jesus by faith. And uh, this is why we're doing a discipling workshop next week. Christy, thank you. This is why we're doing the discipling workshop. Because we want to we help equip everybody in our church to, to know the benefits and implications of the gospel. To know how to apply it to their own lives and how to apply it to the lives of others. So we would love for you to, to, to come out to that. And uh, just to help sell you on it a little bit more, I asked Cheryl Black to, to come up. Cheryl has been one of four of us that's been going through some intensive training with Surge, the organization that is coming in and is partnering with us in, uh, in this uh, discipling workshop. And I asked Cheryl to come and share a little bit about her experience with the training to, to give you a practical example of why this is so important. You're going to think that John and I actually cheated and shared our notes with each other, but we didn't. Um, I'm sort of I would say almost a living example of John's PowerPoints today. So a lot of what you'll hear to, from me is actually an echo of what John already said, and I guess that's a God thing, so that's a good thing. Uh, I will be the first one to tell you that I was one who thought the gospel really was the gospel of salvation, the gospel message of forgiveness from long ago, um, and also the hope of glory. But that in-between part, a little bit more murky. And since the fall, I've been involved in this gospel-centered discipleship training, and I'm beginning to learn and to understand that the gospel truths really are for every day, and it's beginning to change how I do life. Um, in essence, the training that we've, involved, we've been involved in um, examines, re-examines, and looks very closely at the gospel. It, I think Tom used the word before, the unpacking the many layers and truths that are embedded in the gospel itself. And then we talk about the application of it for ourselves and the application of it for others. So these days, these months, these weeks that I've been talking about the gospel, I actually feel like I've sort of been going through a little bit of a, a spiritual cleanse that um, these truths are sort of 
purging out some old patterns of thoughts and behaviors that I've had um, and getting rid of some clutter that I've developed through the years. I want to try to share two areas where I think it's impacted me um, over these months. I've been a believer for a very long time. <laughs> um, I've been a believer since I've been a teenager. Um, but as time has gone on, I've been that, you know, that red line John had up there. I think that had been me, that I had gotten saved, understood the gospel well for my salvation, but then I sort of flipped over um, into a performance sort of mode, um, doing all the, um, I guess you call it the disciple, the spiritual, spiritual disciplines, yeah. disciplines, yes. Um, and I realized that my approach to God was a lot more dependent on me than I thought. My spiritual life was um, being based on trying hard to become what the gospel already says that I've been freely given. Isn't that awesome? That's just really awesome. Um, when I performed well, I thought that God was pleased with me. I felt we had a nice relationship and that I could sort of receive his blessings. But if I wasn't performing very well, um, either that if I was stuck in sin or if I just wasn't being faithful and reading my Bible every day or whatever I had promised God to do, that there was sort of a distance between us and that he was disappointed and sort of waiting for me up there till I got my act together. Um, I knew in my head for sure that God couldn't love me any less than he did, but I think I was living my life like he could love me more if I was just doing it right or better. Mm. And that is so not the gospel. Um, the other thing I wanted to share, and this I sort of share with a gulp, is that um, as I've been studying and just hanging around with the gospel truths, is that I was sort of living like a modern-day Pharisee. Mm. A little bit scary, especially when you really don't recognize it in yourself. Mm. Um, if you talk to my husband, he might have recognized it, but he wasn't telling me about it. So um, I realized that I really was full of self-righteousness and full of um, the ability to very easily judge other people. And I didn't really get that. But when we were talking about these gospel truths over these weeks and months, whatever, we talked about the word righteousness and self-righteousness. And I would have said, I am never one of those things. A self-righteous person is kind of pompous and arrogant, and I didn't really picture myself as that. But what they did is they took the words and they changed them a little bit. Instead of talking about self-righteousness, they said, living in your own rightness. I'm like, living in my own rightness? Oh my gosh, that's what I do every day. I am always right. I'm right about big things. I'm right about little things. I'm right about things that don't even matter. I'm right about the most efficient way to drive to my friend's house. Talked to my husband. We had a big argument about that one. That's our, one of our classic arguments in our history. And he said, why does it matter to you? And I'm like, I don't know why. It just does. And what I thought the truth was is I thought I just had opinions, a lot of opinions, strong opinions. German heritage opinions. Um, but none of that was really true. Um, as I've been sort of using the word marinating in the gospel, I've realized that um, it was my sinful heart longing to make myself righteous apart from Christ's work for me. And that is also not the gospel. So um, the training that we've been in, obviously you can tell that's only a few things. I could 
take this mic from John and keep talking for a long time about all the different ways that God has been transforming my heart. But he's also done something else in way of how I start to see discipling and mentoring and talking to other people in my life. The, um, the gospel is now to me sort of more like a road map. I see almost every aspect of our lives, when we say this, John, mm-hmm. is connected to the gospel in some way, either in I'm not believing it, mostly in that unbelief, or not even really knowing it. So when I talk to people now, the gospel sort of ends like a road map that I can see where issues are in the life. Instead of sort of getting bogged down in the circumstances or the details of a person's problem, it's sort of like all roads lead to the gospel. Um, and the final thing I just wanted to share is I would really encourage you to come out to the workshop that we're having next Saturday. I think we all need to become experts in the knowledge and the use of the gospel, not only to, for sharing with unbelievers, but we need to speak gospel truths to one another because we really need them. And we also need to speak gospel truths to our own heart, obviously, as I did, um, so that we can not stray from the gospel and so that we can really walk in newness of life. The gospel is good news. It's not just good news for the past. It's good news for every single day. Amen? Amen. Amen. You can, yeah, you can take that. Thanks, Cheryl. I think Cheryl preached it better than me. So that's why we want you to come out to this, because we think it can transform your life and the way that that your ministry happens. And so we're going to be doing this. We hope to do more of them in the future. We've got some other opportunities coming uh, down down the road as well that uh, you'll be uh, made... uh, made aware of as they come. It's appropriate for everybody, whether you're, you're working with children or young adults or youth or men's ministry, women's ministry, small groups, missions, whatever, because everybody grows the same way through the gospel. And so kids who you're discipling downstairs in the Sunday school class going on right now, they need the gospel just as much as we do. They need it applied to their hearts the same way. Same with the youth group. Same with our missions teams and, and so forth. So this is something that's not just, it's not just for adult ministries teaching you a specific methodology of discipleship. It's, it's teaching you to, to transform the way you think about the entirety of your Christian life, to be oriented around the truth of the gospel. And uh, I want to I end today by talking to you. If you are here and you're not a believer... If you're not a Christian, you've not been born again, placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then all of this that we're talking about, about being changed by the gospel, you can't be changed by gospel grace unless you've first been saved by gospel grace. And so, I want to make an appeal to you that as Tom said last week, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can leave this room today certain that you have been forgiven of your sins. Because Jesus, uh, Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. And when the, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued from my sin? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we pray, we bow our heads, and if you uh, 
are feeling the, the Lord tug at your heart and you know you want your sins to be forgiven, you know that your works cannot earn favor with him, that you have to come to him through Jesus and allow Jesus to save you. Just pray right there in your seat as best as you can. Say, Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't earn your salvation. I know I deserve your wrath against my sin. But Lord, I want to trust in Jesus. I want his death to count for my death. I want his life to count for my life, and I want to follow him. You keep your heads bowed. If anybody here this morning is wanting to make that decision, I would just like to see you are, follow up with you. We'd like to give you a booklet. So if, if, if any of you have made that decision, please raise your hand high so I can, I can see. All right, then I will trust that everybody here has already decided to follow Jesus, and I rejoice at that. Let's pray. May you, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do as well. Work in, that, work in us, Lord, that which is pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.